Hello and welcome to Recovery Survey, the podcast where we survey recovering addicts with different backgrounds and different links of clean time and ask them questions about different recovery topics. Our guest today is my friend Steve S. He's here to talk to us about mental health. Just as a quick disclaimer, this episode does contain content about self-harm. Thank you, Steve, for being willing to share your story with us. Welcome to the show. I want to talk about, yeah, you know, I've dealt with mental illness, but what I really want to talk about is uh, I want to talk about Noah, and I want to talk about how, uh, and I get emotional when I talk about this. I want to talk about how we get into recovery, and some of us, like Noah got like three years clean, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and he was doing really well, but then he, he turned 21. Every time he would go out, it was like, it was harder for him to come back. And we could tell, like, the first time he came home, you know, we have a rule that you can't live in our house if you're getting high, you know, because not only because we're mom and dad, right, but also because we're recovering addicts and you put all of us at jeopardy, right? Noah went through a lot of treatment centers, you know, but it started out with mental illness when he was younger, you know. He never felt like he fit in, you know. He was dyslexic and bipolar and ADD, you know, and uh, he got him about three years clean. He graduated high school, and uh, he was hanging out with people in recovery, and things were great, you know, and then he started isolating. He didn't want to take his medication anymore, you know, because he was an adult, and he wanted the opportunity to see if he really didn't need it, right? And with him, he uh, got off his medication and started running around with, with the old crowd, you know, and uh, quit hanging out with his buddies in recovery and started slipping. And, you know, we went back and forth, and, you know, we were drug testing him and doing all kinds of stuff, and he'd get clean for a little bit and then go back out. And then he finally moved out and he really went out, you know, and, uh, he ended up having to have surgery. The surgery required that he had to have, uh, IV antibiotics after he got out. So Susie and I decided to bring him back home because we knew that when you're in the midst of your addiction, you're not going to take care of yourself and that needed to be tended to, or he could end up losing his leg. Right. So when we got him home, as he started going through withdrawal, he was very paranoid, and uh, we would literally have to talk him down, you know, because he was afraid people were coming out after him and all that. So it was almost like a, it was borderline schizophrenic. It would take me about an hour to talk to him and talk him down and calm him down, right? But it took about a month for all that to get out of his system to where he seemed kind of like Noah again, right? Mm -hmm. What we noticed was, was every time that he would go out, it would get worse, right? It was like he almost was all into this conspiracy theory that, you know, his mind was bigger than this world sometimes. And he uh, struggled with uh, the way that the world was about how people were judged by the color of the skin or how much money you made or, you know, and uh, he really struggled with that. I remember talking to him and he was like, it's not fair. And I always tried to be honest with my kids and I remember telling him I was like you know you're right it's wrong it's 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 messed up I was like but all we can do is change our corner but you know it, that wasn't a good enough answer for for Noah you know he got assumed consumed with it you know we went back and forth and we've always 
told the kids that whenever they're ready, we're here to help, you know, and they, they know where they, they need to go. Noah, uh, came to the house and it was probably about two in the morning and he was messed up. And I was like, you can't stay here when you're messed up. And he sat on the couch and, uh, he pulled the gun out and put it to his head. I got the gun away from him. Susie was worried and she called the police and the police uh, took him to the hospital, you know. And while he was in the hospital, uh, he made the decision that maybe he needed long-term treatment. And he called Susie and we were excited, you know. He's going to get help, you know. So they transferred him to the treatment center and he was still paranoid. in the treatment center he was there for about five days and committed suicide noah passed away it'll be a year next month then on <laughs> noah's birthday the tornado hit our house right and then uh we finally moved back into the house susie she's an icu nurse she was one of the ebola nurses right so that happened and that changed our life dramatically because after we got through that and they put her in isolation and brought her back home, I had to listen to her make the phone call to the boys about I might have Apollo and uh, there's a chance, you know, and it was like, I've been, we've been married for 23 years, right? And this is like my best friend, my lover, my wife, the mother of my children. And on our way out, she's telling me where the insurance policy is and how to do this and all that. And I'm like terrified, right? So we get through the Ebola thing. And then we lose Noah, the tornado hits, and then Corona comes, and guess who draws the first Corona patient in Dallas County? Susie does. If we wrote that as a story, right, and we made a movie, you'd watch about a quarter of that and go, this is a bunch of crap. That couldn't happen to one fan. It's just been nuts. What I've noticed is, is since Noah passed, though, everything is just minimal. We're literally like newcomers that are having to ask how to live. What one person said, it's it's a club that nobody wants to be a member of. So that's why I feel like it's, it's important for Susie and I to educate people and work with people and work with mental illness and, and suicide prevention. Normally in recovery, it seems like I can go through some painful stuff. And, and uh, I was taught a long time ago to pray to get through the pain but also pray to have the lesson be revealed it's important for me that when someone makes a comment about being suicidal or wanting to hurt themselves it's my responsibility to stop and listen you know because we take things for granted we uh assume that people are crying wolf but you know a lot of times they're just asking for help it's a game changer for all of us, you know, and not only is it meant for me and Susie, but also you got to realize that we had uh, Dylan was living with us, Christopher and Sarah, you know. So we had five people going through a grieving process under one house, right? And we're all in recovery. But the cool thing about it is, is that, uh, we allowed each other to be where they needed to be, right? I might have a bad day when they're having a better day. But we loved each other through it. And we're still grieving, you know, and uh, 
when he first passed away, we were in shock for a while. It was so busy in, in the what I love about Narcotics Anonymous is is that when, when we get in, we get to choose our families, you know. We had our Narcotics Anonymous family surrounded us and loved us and picked us up and uh, made sure we ate, you know, and, and simple stuff. And it was just like being a newcomer because we didn't know what to do. And you know what? Everybody lifted us up and took care of us. We were still in a lot of shock then too, right? So when Noah passed, it was real busy around our house. There were so many people. We had so many things we had to take care of. And then, you know, it uh, kind of calmed down and people kind of dispersed and went on with their lives. And then it was us left with having to deal with the grieving, right? I uh, noticed when I would go into meetings, people would share. It was hard for me to sit and listen. I noticed that I started becoming judgmental, you know? It was like I, I was almost trying to self-sabotage myself. So I had to humble myself and uh, go in there and sit on my hands and listen and act like a newcomer. Because I needed to be there, you know. Both Susie and I hold service positions in our group, or we did. And I had just taken a service position right before Noah passed. I'm grateful that I took that service position because that's what kept me active. Because I had a responsibility to the group. It's that stuff y'all teach us when we first come in, man. You get active. You stay active. That's a big part of Susie and I's story. I met Susie in recovery. We were both on fire for recovery, and we lived in Dallas, right? Then we got married, and we moved to the suburbs to raise a family, and I forgot where I came from. That's where my relapse came from. I always say, Susie got busy. I got high. It was self-care, man. It was a... I quit calling the people that I was calling. I quit doing the things I was doing, you know. And the next thing you know, it's me. Head full of N.A. and a body full of dope don't work out. So I think about all that stuff a lot. It's changed me. And then, you know, I have this fear of becoming a bitter, grumpy old man, you know. And I've always been very loving and caring and I love people and all that. But it was just like, this has turned me inside out. But the cool thing about it is, is I can always start back at step one. You know, I'm powerless over all this stuff. And God keeps handing it to us, you know. I, mean, I don't think God's handing it to us. It's like when uh, when that tornado hit our house, we were in our house, right? We were watching a football game, and it's coming, and I tell everybody to get into the bathroom. And you can feel the, the tornado. You can feel the suction from the bottom of the floor coming up and all that stuff, you know. And... uh it passes and we walk out. We walk in the living room and it kind of looks normal. And we're like, oh, it's okay. And then I start opening the doors and I mean, the house is tore up. We had two big oak trees that landed on top of our house. I remember walking out in the front yard and I'm like, okay, God, you have my freaking address. Just cut me a break, you know? And I was so angry. Susie walks out behind me and she's like, I'm so grateful everybody's okay, you know, and I, it took me like three or four days to get to the gratitude part of it. You ever seen that hefty plate commercial where they're stacking all the food on it, like the steak, and they keep on stacking it, and that plate's just like, I feel like if God gives me another corn on the cob on my plate, man, it's going to bust. That's how I feel sometimes, right? And then I get on the other side of it, I'm like, I ain't had to put no dope on it, though, either. So something's working. 
What advice would you give to someone that's struggling with mental health or has a family member that's struggling with mental health issues? There's a lot of help out there. And uh, I think for me, since all this has happened, I don't take people threatening to hurt themselves lightly. You know, I don't minimize that. Used to, I'd be like, oh man, you know, they're just act, you know, they're just wanting attention or whatever. But you know what? It's a, uh, it's really my responsibility to, to listen because that's what people are normally wanting is just somebody to listen. What we've learned through this process too is, is normally if they can get through five or ten minutes, you know what, that thought goes away. Every day I, I sit and think of the things I wish I would have said or the things I could have said, uh, the things I would have done different. That's something I'll probably do for the rest of my life. I don't want to ever have to do feel that way with anybody else again. I, I really don't. I, I don't want to doubt, did they know if I loved them? And that's part of our, our package too, right, is the unity part of the program, you know. That's a very important part. Because uh, we go out there on the streets for a long time and uh, we come in with animal instincts and, and we don't trust and, and we're in fear. And uh, you're telling me that all my survival skills are character defects, but y'all keep loving me and y'all keep telling me to come back, right? So that's the important part of it is the unity and the love. I don't think that uh, God carries us this far not to be able to give the love back to somebody. When I first came into the program, Narcotics Anonymous was really small. If you didn't show up to a meeting, they were showing up on your doorstep. And the 12-step call wasn't putting somebody in a cab and rolling them out to the treatment center. I mean, you know, you, you sat with them. I think we need more of that again. We need to slow down and check in on people. Let them know that we love them. And let them know that, you know what, this too shall pass. Because, you know what, a lot of times we get caught up in the middle of stuff and we think it's the worst thing in the world and that it's going to kill us. But, you know what, if we can just sit on our hands and wait for it to pass, it'll pass. This last time I came in, we, we have a member of the group and he, he looked at me and he's like, man, next time just stay, dude. It's so much easier just to stay. And that's the truth, man. That last relapse almost killed me. I was older, my body, I couldn't bounce back like when I was younger. You know, it hurt. I did a lot of damage to my body. But that's all I think about is that dude going, man, just stay. It's a lot easier. You know, I finally heard that after 20-something years. So that's the advice I would have is just slow down and listen and let people know that you love them. We get too busy as we got today. I remember the first time that I picked up a white tag and how it felt when everybody's like, yeah, you know, they're like cheering you on, you know. I mean, this is a drug addict that's been kicked out of houses and bars and, you know, tell people tell me not to come back. And then everybody's like, keep coming back. And you're like, wow, that's awesome, you know. And I probably got 30 or 40 days and ended up relapsing, you know, and I remember coming back in. And I, I had that shame, you know, that core shame. And I went in and, you know, they, they asked a bit about anybody coming back for a relapse. And, you know, I went up there and got my white tag. And everybody's like, yeah, you know, it's like, wow, they loved me. And they allowed me to come back. You know, I'm not used to that. You know, I'm used to people telling me, 
go away, you know, quit coming. But after a while, it's important to let somebody else be the most important person there because after a while, they get old, man. You know, I'm a retread. I've done it a bunch. I'll never forget the feeling of that keep coming back. You know, it's important to feel that. That's good stuff. Yeah, that's definitely something that I found very attractive about the program is that people always encouraged me to keep coming back and I felt like I was wanted. Is there anything that you're working on now to help raise awareness about mental health? We had a an event here called My Brother's Keeper and we raised money for uh, Project Semicolon and another place that's here local called Stop the Stigma, which... Stop the Stigma is pretty cool because what they do is they uh, raise money for hours of counseling. So whatever you donate, it turns into hours for people that can't afford therapy, right? So we were able, in about four hours, we raised about $8,000. And it was cool to watch the recovery community and then also the vape community that I'm in everybody came together and it's awesome to see that kind of thing. My best friend, he lost his son literally like three months before I did to the same thing, you know? And, and that's, what's crazy is, is I remember getting the phone call from him and we were in Cancun on vacation. I found out that his son had passed away. And I didn't have words, you know. I, there was nothing I could say to him, you know, because I had never experienced anything like that. All I, I remember thinking to myself, all I can do is love him through this, right? Three months later, here I am calling him with the same thing, and he's in recovery too, right? And it's like I'm calling him with the same thing that he called me with, and, you know, I'm so grateful that I have people that stuck around that have, gone through what I'm going through you know that's how it works though too but it's just crazy thinking that that's them up there it's Nick and Noah and both of them were like they had magical personalities man they when they walked out of the room you, you knew they were there you know what I mean so that's what we do is we keep carrying the message for Noah I've had so many people come to me when all this happened, and they're like, man, don't get high. And I was like, hadn't even crossed my mind, dude, you know? For one thing, I think that uh, I've done a pretty thorough first step, you know, and I've gotten rid of all the reservations, but also for the dignity of my son, you know, I, I wouldn't. You know what I mean? And that's the truth. A lot of heavy stuff, man. So you mentioned earlier that you also struggle with mental health. What do you do to combat that, and what are you doing for your recovery? Well, there's, I mean, you know what, I, I'm not going to lie, I still go to therapy, you know. I haven't been going in the last month like I should, but I, I still have to go to therapy. Susie and I made an agreement that uh, if I get out of line or, you know, not only did I talk to Susie about it, but I talked to my sponsor about it, and we all came together and talked about it, you know. It's, it's something that needs to be talked about. If if I become manic or <laughs> I'm acting out of order, then you know what? I need to do something about it, you know? That's what it talks about in, in our literature, too, though, is that, you know what? We're responsible to let the doctors know what's going on with us, right? 
It's not their job to figure out what the matter is. We need to be honest. And it it comes back to that honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. we got to be willing to tell the doctor what's really going on, you know? And I think a lot of it is is that uh, we get caught up with what people think about us. But the truth is, is we're all wired backwards, man. You know, there's a reason why I did drugs, you know? I was self-medicating before I even knew, you know? I know that uh, I'm responsible for my own health. But it goes back to that pamphlet, too, in a time of illness. I mean, we have literature that's there for that, and we need to observe that, too. Because it talks about in our literature that we'll go through deaths and we'll go through losing jobs and divorces or whatever. So we're in the no matter what's right now, man. Tornado hit the house. I'm not going to use no matter what. Lost my son. I'm not going to use no matter what. I can have feelings today too, though, you know, and I can be sad and I can be angry, but also I've got to be appropriate in the way that I handle that stuff too. But I've learned all that shit in recovery. I've learned how to admit that I'm sad or admit that I'm angry and it's okay. There's a difference between being sad and having situational depression or isolate myself and cover myself up in bed not getting out for weeks. I can have my feelings. I just can't let my feelings dominate me. This is my stick, man. And it's going to sound like I'm on, on the, the the preaching box. But also, uh, I encourage people, you know, where it says abstinence from all drugs. I get that part of the book, right? But also, you know, I've watched where I've been a member of a group where we had a, we had a member that was uh, mentally ill, that had to take his medication and uh, somebody that didn't understand what that meant got a hold of this kid and sat and told him that it's a program of abstinence of all drugs and they found that kid dead like within a week. He committed suicide. So it's not my job to tell you that you shouldn't be on certain medications. I kind of have a problem with that. That kind of sounded rough, but the, it's the truth. You know, I'm not a doctor. I can't tell you how to take care of yourself. You're, if you're honest with your doctor and he knows what's going on with you and you have a good doctor, then he's going to guide you in the right way. That's all there is to it. And I'm not talking about opiates and benzos and all that stuff. I'm talking about when it's your mental health, you know, it's your mental health. Yeah, exactly. And it's our responsibility as recovering addicts to let those healthcare professionals know that we struggle with addiction so that they can then prescribe medications accordingly. And then also there's another side of that too, is when you're having the dentist, when you're having teeth pulled or when you're having a surgery, uh, and that was part of my story is, is that, uh, I remember talking to my sponsor when I started having the, I've had like eight back surgeries and my spine is fused. And I remember talking to my sponsor, and I've been with my sponsor for years, and he knows me inside and out. And I remember he kept on telling me when we started talking about surgery, he's like, stay on top of your attic. What he meant by that was I need to surround myself with people in recovery while I'm going through this, right? With me, I did that for the first couple of surgeries, but then by the time I was at the third surgery, I became a professional, and I didn't need y'all's help anymore. The next thing you know, I'm taking more than prescribed, and I've created a habit, right? So that's what 
I learned from my sponsor was is that you need to stay on top of your addict. So when you're going through stuff like that, it's important for me to communicate with my with my support group what's really going on with me. I think that's why it's so important to be part of a home group is because you get to know the people and they can call you on your stuff and they know when stuff's going on with you, you know. So that 90 and 90, it's not only to create new habits, but also it's to create relationships. The third tradition states that the only requirement for membership is desire to stop using. But also that gives me the right to have membership, but also it gives me the opportunity to learn from all kinds of people, right? So that's where my home group comes in is that third tradition is really important to me because it earns my seat, but also it gives me opportunity to learn and love all kinds of people. It's pretty simple stuff that we make really complicated. Thank you for sharing yours and Noah's story with us. I know it wasn't easy, but it's a topic that needs to be discussed and we need to break that stigma of talking about mental health. So thank you again. Thanks again for listening to Recovery Survey. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving us a rating or a review, and please be sure to tell your friends about us. If you'd like to get in contact with us, we have a brand new website. It's recoverysurvey.com. Until next time, I've been your host, Brett. Thanks for listening.